The story is told of a uh, Texas farmer who was visiting a fellow rancher farmer in Australia, the Australian wanting to show his hospitality. He took him around his farm. So he took him on a tour, and the first stop on the farm was the apple orchard. And as he was showing him around the apple orchard, the Texan responded, he goes, you call them apples? Shoot, son, in Texas, we've got grapes that grow bigger than those apples. Unfazed by the man's rude behavior, the Australian took him next to his watermelon patch, and uh, to which the Texan responded, you call them melons? In Texas, we got apples that grow bigger than them melons. And it went on like this throughout the course of the day. By the end of the day, the Australian had grown very frustrated with his guest and just was about to say something when out from the brush jumped a kangaroo. Caught them both off guard. The Texan jumped back and said, what, what, what was that? To which the Australian said, what, mate? Don't you have grasshoppers in Texas? <laughs> you know, I'm certain that uh, many of us can identify with this story. We all know folks like the Texan who are pr- prideful, rude, always right. I spoke with the man. I spoke at a uh, men's retreat Friday night and yesterday, and I was uh, speaking with the gentleman who was frustrated because of an acquaintance that he had who seemed to not have any interest in spiritual things. And in fact, every time he brought something up, there was a counter-argument as to this man's point of view. And he he had grown frustrated with him, and to the point of, you know, he, he wondered if there was any hope for this man's life. You know, what's interesting is, as we've gone through and continue to go through the book of 1 Timothy, the good news that I had to share with him is the same that I have to share this morning with all of us, and that is this, that the Bible clearly teaches there is hope for all. There is hope for all. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy, because this is a passage of great hope and encouragement for all of us who deal with people in our life who show a certain sense of disdain for spiritual things, maybe even to the point of outright hostility or aggressiveness as we discuss these things with them. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we read these words. Starting with verse 3, it says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, it says, Remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. It says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they don't understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. If you'll recall from our introduction, 1 Timothy is one of three letters that are known as the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, as well as Titus, um, contain principles for the pastoral care of churches, qualifications of its elders or leaders, and, all of, and how all God's people um, are to conduct themselves in God's house. In all of Paul's letters, there's a very clear pattern that emerges in Paul's teaching. And basically, it goes like this. Doctrine always precedes duty, creed before conduct. In very simple terms, it means this. You cannot act right until you learn to think right. No good action will ever come out of wrong thinking. It starts with our thoughts and proceeds to go forth in our actions. So the thought life has to be right before we can live right. And as you'll see throughout all of his letters, doctrine starts first and then duty follows that, creed or what we believe, and then it's carried out in how we live our life. So that's what we'll see as we go through there. In the passage that we just read, Paul tells Timothy, who had oversight of all the local churches in, in, the, in the area of Ephesus. If you remember, there were literally hundreds of them that met in small, in small homes or homes of different sizes. And, Paul, and Timothy had the oversight responsibility to make sure that those who were the, quote, pastor, teachers, elders, and you'll see that that word is used interchangeably and for a good and important reason. Pastors, teachers, elders, bishops, we'll find out as we go through what the qualifications are were all terms that were used of the same person or the same office. So he had a responsibility to make sure the pastors, teachers, elders of each of those small groups or assemblies, the local church, were doing three things specifically. The first thing, and, and this is true of every pastor, teacher, there's three responsibilities that Paul lays out for Timothy that are equally true today. The first of which is this, that they are to teach sound doctrine. That they, are gonna, that they are to be committed to teach sound doctrine. Because, like I just mentioned, if people don't think right, they cannot act right. If they don't understand what they believe, they cannot act upon something they don't know. And so they've got uh, to be committed to teaching sound doctrine. In our last message, we went over this in greater detail. And, and it's a reminder that if any of you are interested, each week these messages are taped. The tapes are free to those who want them, to give them to somebody else or to use them for your own study or your own benefit. They're free because of the generosity of other people who are paying the price. And as you'll learn, anything that's free, somebody else is picking up the tab. And uh, so, you know, but just as a reminder that if you want them, don't hesitate to get them. Um, Paul urged Timothy, and that cannot be emphasized enough. Paul tells Timothy that he must have a sense of urgency in making sure that those in Ephesus are not being misled by false teachers, by false teachers, false doctrine, because if you learn what is wrong and then act upon it, your actions will also be wrong. 
there's eternity at stake. There, there couldn't be enough emphasis on this truth that Timothy, as all pastors, teachers, are to be committed to teaching sound doctrine. In fact, Timothy's purpose for remaining in Ephesus and not continuing to travel with the Apostle Paul, he says in verse 3, I urged you upon my departure as he left for Macedonia, you stay here at Ephesus in order that purpose statement that you may instruct certain men not to teach sound doctrine. In fact, he was giving an order. It was, an, it was a military term. He was left with an order from a superior officer. You stay here and you command those people who are teaching false doctrine to stop it. Stop it. Because nothing good comes out of something that is bad. No good behavior comes out of wrong thinking. He was left with the command. And the command was that he tell them to stop teaching strange doctrines. Strange doctrines. These teachings were, were, were taking others off course. They were causing them to stray or wander from the truth or sound doctrine. Such false doctrines can only be recognized after folks become acquainted with the real deal. If you're not instructed in, according to sound doctrine, you will not be in a position to know the difference between that which is right and that which is wrong. Anybody who's in the banking industry knows that in order to, to detect counterfeit money, all they are given is real money, the genuine stuff, to handle it, to hold it, to feel it, to get a, to get a good understanding of what genuine is. So that when somebody hands you a counterfeit, immediately you go, wait a minute, this feels different. The drug enforcement agency does the same thing with its agents. It shows them real drugs so that they can learn to identify the real thing instantaneous. See, sound doctrine helps us to understand what is false because we have something to compare it to that is true. Turn with me in the book of Acts chapter 17 for an example of the importance of this. In Acts 17, you may recall from our study through the book of Acts, we've come to a passage here in, in chapter 17 and verse 10 where we read that, the, and the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. It says, now these were more noble-minded than those on, in Thessalonica, for they received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And many of them, therefore, believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Notice that as we read in the, in, the, in the word of God here, that as Paul went in to teach in the city of Berea, that those were there received the word of God with great eagerness, but not with blind trust. They were excited that he was there to preach God's truth, but they were not blinded by the fact that it was the great apostle Paul who was presenting the message. They were not sidetracked by the messenger, for they continued to examine daily the message to make sure that even Paul was teaching sound doctrine. And I want you to understand something that's very important. God does not accuse them of divisiveness. God does not question their loyalty. But God commends them for being more noble-minded that they recognize the danger of the possibility of false teaching. They had not grown apathetic as so many in our culture have done today where if somebody's teaching or speaking and they have an overhead or PowerPoint or whatever the presentations are and they flash things up there, if there's a verse attached to it, then we immediately think it must be biblical. 
And the danger with that thinking is very clear here, and that is we are to examine daily the Scripture. We are to hold those who teach the Word of God accountable for what they are teaching. We are to never blindly follow any man because any man is capable of being sidetracked from truth and being deceived by the enemy. We are to examine Scripture daily. One of the first flags or signs that you're in dangerous territory is when someone tells you, hey, wait a minute, who are you to question us? We're in whatever the leadership capacity is. Who are you to question us as far as our interpretation of Scripture? Let me tell you something. That's the first flag that you're in dangerous territory. I had a young man who worked for me, and I began to ask him questions. He was, he, he was a Mormon. And uh, he would share with me that, you know, we could all become a God by living a good life. And he would share the different things that he believed. And I said, well, is Jesus Christ a God or the God? And he clearly said he is a God, one of many gods, which that's a flag. And, and, uh, but, it, you know, it didn't, you know. So just in case you missed it. Uh, but, so it but it didn't stop me from continuing the conversation. I said, well, that's interesting. So how do you become a God? Well, you become a God by living a certain type of life. I said, that's fascinating. I said, well, let me ask you something. Could a person who's a liar become a God? He goes, absolutely not. I said, that's interesting. I said, because Jesus very clearly claimed throughout the scriptures to be God. Not a God, not one of many, but to be the God of the universe, the creator of all things. He said, even before Abraham existed, I am, equating himself to the God of the Old Testament. He also said that, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. That Jesus claimed that he was equal with God. That he was and is God. I said, now how do you answer that? He said, you know, I I don't know. I got to go talk to my bishop. See, that's scary stuff. Because the question was raised and he immediately had to run to somebody who he was not allowed to question and whatever that man told him was what he had to go with. Let me tell you something. That's the difference between sound doctrine and false teaching. Any teacher, any pastor, any elder, any leader has got to be open to any question that may arise as to the interpretation of Scripture and be willing to explain it, be willing to handle accurately the word of truth, be willing to go to the Bible and search the Scripture to make sure what they believe is actually from God. And the reason for it is we can all have our own agendas, we can all have our own mindset about certain things that we want to see accomplished, and what we'll do is we'll find Scripture to validate it, and then we'll say it's of God, and it is not. Anybody can take Scripture out of context and make it say what they want it to say. But Scripture stands alone and is interpreted in the light of the context in which it is written. And Paul warned Timothy, brother, let me tell you something. You stay here and you make sure that these men stop teaching strange doctrines. You teach truth. And one of the strange doctrines that became apparent throughout this time was that they did not have a clear understanding as to the purpose of the law of God. These false teachers were guilty of not understanding the word of God. If you go back to First uh, Timothy chapter 1, you'll notice that they, ra- they raised more questions than they answered. They did not further the administration of God, which is by faith, by grace you've been saved with, 
through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, so no one can boast. They did not further that. In fact, it led to fruitless discussions. It led to confusion. It led to division. It led to all kind of chaos. They wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't even understand what it was that they were teaching, but it didn't stop them from making confident assertions. That's fascinating to me, that people can be confident in their ignorance and not know that they're ignorant of truth. So we measure everything according to the word of God. We need that objective, clear standard. And it's twofold. One is this. Every pastor, teacher should be committed to teaching sound doctrine. And every listener should hold every teacher to the sound measurement of the objective word of God. We should never grow lazy. We should never grow apathetic. We should never grow indifferent. We should never assume because somebody's teaching that what they're saying is accurate without examining the word of God. I will guarantee you, for those who are truly born again, the spirit of God lives within us. And one of, one of his, his uh, job descriptions, so to speak, is to remind us of the things of Christ, to lead us into all truth, to teach us. And it doesn't take long when somebody says, well, is Jesus God or one of many gods? Oh, he is a God, one of many. Immediately, the flag goes up because I'm, a, I'm familiar with scripture that teaches the opposite. The Holy Spirit says, lie. That's a lie. That's not right. We've all sat in places and heard somebody teach and go like this. You know, that, that doesn't sound right. There's something wrong with what I just heard. But the only reason we know there's something wrong with what we just heard is because we're spending time in the Word of God. Now, others will sit right next to you and say, I didn't hear anything that was wrong. And you go, what? How can that be? The Bible says because we have grown dull of hearing. We've got lazy. We've gotten indifferent. We've grown apathetic. We need to always have ears that are tuned to hear the voice of God, the Spirit of God, who indwells all genuine believers. See, they were wrongly teaching a salvation by works or human effort. They were telling others, hey, you know what, just obey the law of God. Do the best you can. You know, after all, you're a good person. You do more good things than bad things. You know, it's, you know don't worry about it. You know, just do the best that you can. You know, work your way to heaven. Even though God's word clearly teaches that the twofold purpose of the law was, number one, the purpose of the law was to reveal our sinfulness. The reason that God had given the law was to reveal the sinfulness of man. God knows us. He understands that we're sinners. We're the ones that have a problem understanding it. The purpose of the law is to measure our behavior against what God says is righteous behavior. And we go, man, you know what God says? Well, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us are right. We're all guilty, man. We're all in deep trouble. And more important than we're all in deep trouble, we need to personalize it. I'm in deep trouble. You know, as much as we want to care about one another, let's be real and honest about something. You know what? At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is what God says about me. You know? <laughs> We're all in trouble. Great. But you know what? When, it was, when, when the laws of God revealed to me my sinfulness, the only thing I can think of is, you know what? I'm in deep trouble. What must I do? And isn't it fascinating as we went through the book of Acts, how many times we saw sinners confronted with their sinfulness say, what must I do to be saved from the wrath of God? What must I do to be saved and spared from the judgment of God? What must I do? The second purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ as the only Savior of the world. The law is a tutor that leads us to Christ, the only Savior. What must I do? Repent from sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe what? Believe that he died upon the cross for your sins. Believe that he was raised from the dead three days later to conquer sin and the enemy and death. Believe that he can forgive as he claims that he can. 
The bottom line is, what must I do? Turn from sin, turn to God, and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross on my behalf for my sin. And the Bible says, and to many as believe in him, receive him. To them he's given the privilege to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name. Sound doctrine tells us the law and the gospel go together, for, with, for, for the law without the gospel is diagnosis without remedy. <clears throat> it's like finding out you're sick with no remedy. You've got cancer, there's nothing we can do for you. How hopeless is that? See, but the, <clears throat> but the law of God and the gospel go hand in hand. On the other side, hearing the gospel without knowing that you're a sinner is like being prescribed a medicine for a condition you don't believe you have. Why would you take it? The law and the gospel go hand in hand. The law identifies our illness, sin. The gospel identifies the remedy, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you know that you're sick, you will go to the physician. When you know that you are lost, you will look for direction. When you know that you are blind, you will turn to the one who can open your eyes. When you know that you are a sinner, you will turn to the only Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the law and the gospel go hand in hand, and what these false teachers were doing was teaching something totally opposite than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul commanded Timothy to command them to stop it, to confront them head on. Pastors, teachers must never grow weary or sidetracked from teaching sound doctrine. Another flag is when you hear someone say, you know what, well, these people have heard enough about the Bible. They've been taught enough. How nonsensical is that? That is a lie from the pit of hell. As a pastor, teacher, you can never teach enough sound doctrine. And as a hearer or a listener, you can never learn enough. How could you ever say you've learned everything there is to learn about the awesome God who created us? Man, you could go through the same passage the rest of your life and never gain all the depth out of the passage that you're studying. Now, if they're saying that you've learned enough, it's time to apply it, I just say there's probably a better way to say it, and that is this. You know what? <laughs> Let's apply the things that we learn. Let's be doers of the word and not hearers only. But you can never teach enough sound doctrine, and you can never learn enough sound doctrine, because out of right and sound doctrine becomes right and sound behavior. And that's the simplicity of all of it. Number two. Not only was Timothy and all pastors and teachers to teach sound doctrine, they were also to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. In verse 12, notice what he says. He says, man, he goes, as he's thinking about the glorious gospel that has been entrusted to him, he breaks out in praise. In addition to the commitment of, <clears throat> of every, te- excuse me, every teacher to teach <clears throat> sound doctrine, In addition to that, there's a tireless commitment to preach the gospel. Paul says in verse 11, you know, he's saying that, you know what, anything that's contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which I've been entrusted, as he thinks about the gospel, he breaks out and says, you know what, man, he goes, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Literally, the translation is, thanks I have. As I look back and I recognize where God has brought me from, The glorious gospel, the dynamite of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he wrote to the Romans, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. 
He goes, man, when I think about the gospel, I can't help but stop and say, thanks I have to the Lord Jesus Christ. Grateful am I. Because when I think of the gospel, I recognize there's one thing that the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that false teaching cannot do, and that is turn a sinner into a saint. Take a person who is dead spiritually and give them spiritual life. False teaching cannot produce that kind of result. But the glorious gospel entrusted to Paul, he says, thanks I have, grateful am I, praise God for the gospel, because without the gospel, I and you, we all, would be still dead in our sins. Praise God for that. And it led him to share his own personal testimony. He'd now use himself in this passage in verses 12 through 17. He uses himself kind of as exhibit A to prove that the gospel of the grace of God truly transforms sinners into saints. He says, and if you don't believe me, just look at my life. He says, as Paul reflected, you know, on God's miraculous work in his life, he couldn't help but shout out, man, I am grateful. And in fact, he wrote to the Romans that, you know what, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That no one can be saved from sin without hearing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one will recognize they're a sinner without hearing that the law condemns us. No one will recognize the remedy without hearing the good news of Jesus Christ is that God loves us in the midst of our sinfulness and sent Christ to die on the cross in our behalf. That's beautiful. And man, when he thinks about it, he just goes, man, think about my life. When you read Paul's life story in Acts 9 and Acts 22, Acts 26, which we did when we went through the book of Acts here in 1 Timothy and other places throughout the New Testament, you begin to grasp the wonder of God's grace and his saving power. You know, in appropriate testimony form, what he does is he says, you know what, just as a quick reminder, I want to remind you what my life was before I came to hear the gospel, how I was saved from that life, And now what God is doing currently in my life. That's a beautiful outline for anyone who ever wants to share their testimony. And it can be done in several forms. The first time that I was ever asked to give my testimony publicly, I was asked to share in seven minutes. And I thought, seven minutes? That's an eternity. What am I going to say for seven minutes? Some of you wish I still remember those days. (laughs) But the reality of of the outline is very simple. Before, how, and now. And that's what we're going to take a look at very, uh, very clearly what he has to say as it relates to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 13a, Paul tells us what he used to be. What he used to be, and he's never forgotten it. He used to be a blasphemer. Literally, the word in verse 13 means one who is in opposition or slanders God who overtly speaks evil of him. Paul was a man who overtly spoke evil of God. It reminds me of all the hopeless people that I come in contact with. All the hopeless people you come in contact with. How hopeless I was at a time in my life. The the person that says, you know what, I don't believe in God. There is no God. Or there's many gods. Or every road leads to God. It doesn't really matter specifically what you believe. Jesus Christ is not the only way. That is blasphemy. Jesus Christ is not God. That is blasphemy. It is denying the very truth of what God says about himself. Jesus Christ isn't the only way to heaven. All roads lead to heaven and all that matters is whether we work good or not, whether at the end of the day we do enough good things or bad things and that's how we're going to all, hey, you know what though? But that's false teaching. It's false doctrine and the only way to know that is by looking at the sound truth of God's word. He was a blasphemer. He spoke evil of God. And if it wasn't one thing to speak evil of God, he was also, he wasn't content with just his own opinion. He was a persecutor 
of those who spoke well of God, of those who said, no, there is only one way to heaven. No, Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. Jesus Christ did die on the cross for the sins of the world, sufficient for all, applicable only to those who believe. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and is alive today. Jesus Christ shall return to judge the living and the dead. Everyone will give an account to him. Those who know him for what we've done subsequent to coming to know him, those who do not and have rejected him, they will be judged by him nonetheless because all judgment has been given to him, John chapter 6. He was not content with just his own opinion, but he went out and persecuted. And not only did he persecute them, but he was a violent aggressor of those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He went out violently. The word violent aggressor refers to a person with no uh, concern, normal concern for human kindness. He was a bully. He was a maniac. He was a sociopath. He was a guy that said, if you don't deny Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to drag you by your hair and I'm going to take you into town. We're going to throw you into prison. And if everything goes according to my plan, we will then kill you. That was his life. That's who he was. And I'm sure that many knew him, that knew him, thought, you know what, there's a hopeless dude. There's one hopeless guy. There is no hope for Saul of Tarsus. A blasphemer, persecutor of those who love God, and a violent aggressor. It's no wonder, given that record, that the disciples were very slow to accept him into their fellowship. Remembering what he had been freed from caused him to maintain a humble, grateful attitude. Thanks, I am. Grateful am I. How was the last time you said, thanks, I am? And the emphasis on thanks, by the way. Grateful am I for God's love of me when I even hated him. Thanks, I am. I have found in my own life there is no more humbling thing to do than to simply tell someone who has done something kind for me, thank you. Thank you. It is the most humbling thing to do. It's easy to say, I owe you. We'll get the next one next time dinner's on us. No, We'll keep track of this somehow. That's, that's easy to do. The hardest thing to do is just say, thank you, and leave it at that. When was the last time you just spoke to God and said, thank you? <laughs> There's nothing I can do. I can't repay you to ever make up for what you've done for me. Thanks I am. Grateful am I. The question that I had as I was going through this, how in the world was he delivered from such a life? How was he saved from the the, the judgment of God? And there's three words that stand out. Three words that have such deep and rich meaning that we can never fully grasp it, but we'll do our best to understand it. The first word is mercy. The first word is mercy. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. God is rich in mercy. 
and he did not give Paul what he did deserve. The Bible says that Paul acted ignorantly. We'll speak on that in a second. But thirdly, it says that God is rich in mercy and in grace. Grace and mercy are God's love in action. God's love paying a price to save lost sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's not enough that God just loves people because the Bible says he loves the world. God's love can never save any of us from his judgment. God's love is a motivating factor behind the fact he sent Jesus Christ. Our Lord's death upon the cross and the power of his resurrection is the gospel message. The message doesn't stop at just God loves people, which he does. And he demonstrated his love for us, and yet while we were sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. So for those who we come in contact with, it says, well, I believe that God loves everyone. Absolutely he does. And he loves us to a degree that we'll never be able to comprehend, that in that love for us, he sent Christ to die upon a cross, so that if we would believe in him, we would find forgiveness and eternal life. How great a love is that? How rich in mercy is God? How rich in, in grace he is as well? He, uh, Ephesians 2, four, uh, verses 4 and 7. But the question is, how could such a wicked sinner receive mercy? And like I said, I'm sure that every Christian at the time that saw Saul in action thought, man, you know what? <laughs> God's going to get him. Man, God is going to get him one day. And yet at the same time, we find it in the word he acted ignorantly. He acted ignorantly. Now, what does ignorance have to do with salvation? And is ignorance an excuse before God? That answer is an emphatic no. Ignorance is never an excuse before God. Then what does ignorance have to do with salvation? And this is where we come to sound doctrine. If you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Numbers, and it can be easily explained from the Word of God. In Numbers chapter 15... There's a passage that begins in verse 22 that explains how ignorance is related to Paul and all of our salvation. He acted ignorantly. In Numbers 15, verse 22, we read these words. See, but when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses... Even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it shall be if it is done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation that all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its libation according to the ordinance and one male goat for a sin offering. It says, then the high priest will make atonement for all the congregation and the sins of Israel, and they shall be forgiven, for it was an error. And they have brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. So all the congregation will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among them, for it happened to all the people through a mistake. It was unintentional. You did what was wrong before God, you didn't know any better. But yet at the same time, an offering had to be made. At the same time, guilt had to be acknowledged. Yeah, I sinned, but I didn't know it was a sin. Ignorance before the law is no excuse under the law. There has to be an offering that is made. There must be atonement that is made. There was a sacrifice that was made. And so there is still consistency, even though the person did so unintentionally. If one person in verse 27 sins unintentionally, then he should offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. 
You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is a native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. The point is this. Those who sin unintentionally, for them there was hope. And the hope was the offer of a sacrifice, an admittance that what they did was wrong, a repentance turning from how they had conducted themselves before to how they were now, how they were now instructed to conduct, to, to conduct themselves now. Jesus Christ, as he was dying upon the cross, said these most important words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Paul later, later addressing his brothers of Israel said, you know what? I know that you acted ignorantly when you put the Christ to death upon the cross. See, when our Lord revealed himself to the Apostle Paul at the time Saul of Tarsus, and he was confronted with the wrong, unintentional ways of his life, he responded appropriately when Jesus said, Why are you persecuting me? He said, Lord, Lord, who art thou first? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. At that moment in time, he recognized the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ by calling him Lord, Lord, and recognizing that he was a sinner before God. He said later, if you remember his testimony before Agrippa, consequently, I did not prove disobedient to the calling. When he was confronted with his wrong actions, he repented of sin turn from sin, turn to God, believe that Jesus Christ is God, the only Savior of the world, and turn to Him and threw Himself upon the mercy of God, the grace of God, by grace, he said, and that required, if you go back to 1 Timothy, required superabundant grace. To save a sinner like me required superabundant mercy and superabundant grace, but we know where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Now, if you read any further in Numbers 29, and I'm sorry that I just made you turn back, but uh, it'll be good for some of you. It's good exercise. <laughs> Maybe the most that you've walked all week, just let your fingers do the walking here. Get them in shape. If anything on your body should be in shape, it should be these two fingers flipping pages. It says, but the person who does anything in verse 30, but by contrast to those who sin unintentionally, but the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, and that person shall be completely cut off, his guilt shall be upon him. Now I want you to stop and think very carefully about what was just said. Those who sin in ignorance, those who sin in ignorance have hope. As God confronts us with our sinfulness, and we turn from sin and turn to God and repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, the Bible says we shall be saved. We shall inherit eternal life. But for those who are confronted with their sin and they act in rebellion against God, acting defiantly, there no longer remains a sacrifice for them and their sin. Willful, stubborn disobedience before God, for that person there is no hope but only judgment to come. The German philosopher Nietzsche said, if you could prove God to me, I would believe him all the less. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And for the fool in scripture, there is no hope. 
But see, that wasn't the Apostle Paul. When he was faced with the truth, he believed it. And the grace of God is powerful enough to redeem the worst sinner who is willing to repent. The word of God sheds light on our sin. And the only remedy that's offered by God is the Lord Jesus Christ. He sinned ignorantly. And when his ignorance was pointed out, he was humble enough to turn from sin and to turn to God and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was saved. Now, which brings us to what he became. And he's saying, now, now look at me, what, what I have become. And this is important for us as we look at this. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. I have said many times, and Paul is saying it here, we are saved to serve the risen Christ. We are saved to serve God. He said, he has put me into service. Even though this was my past, hey, you know what? Old things pass away, all things become new. All things become new. God does not hold my past against me. God does not hold your past against you when you come to him and, and ask for his forgiveness. He says, as far as the east is from the west, as far as he has removed our transgressions from us. It's a, it's a wonderful truth. And if that doesn't cause you to say, grateful I am, I don't know what will. I praise God that he doesn't hold my past against me. That every sin I've ever committed, past, present, and even future, was nailed upon the cross with our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. He was put into active service. God's grace turned the persecutor into a preacher, a murderer into a missionary, a maniac into a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God not only entrusted Paul with the gospel, but he also enabled Paul to minister the gospel. And it's important that we recognize, you know, when, God, when someone obeys God's call to serve him, God always equips and enables and empowers that person to do the job that God had prepared for him to do before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. God has saved us to do the work that he has called us to do before the foundation of the world. Before we were even saved, God knew the work that he had planned for us to do for his kingdom and for his glory. Now, the question you've got to ask yourself is, if you're not doing anything, what is it, God, that you had planned for me to do? Because as of this moment in time, I haven't got to that part of my relationship with you. Just ask him, and he'll tell you. You know, I was laughing with a couple of the guys at the men's retreat. One of the guys came up with an idea for a book. It said, uh, you know, it's a book based on Moses' life. And the book's going to be called, Here I Am, Lord, Send Aaron. And I like that because a lot of us can identify with that. You know, here I am, Lord, you know, send uh, this guy, <laughs> send Reggie, <laughs> let him, you know, take care of it for me and, you know, just let me know how it's all going. You know, the second thing is, is that what Paul became is not only a servant, but notice also an example, an example. He said, it is a trustworthy statement. Look at verse 15, man. This is, a, this is the gospel in eight words. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. acceptance. I like that. You can bank on this. You can believe it. This is trustworthy. It says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's the gospel. And I want you to notice, it talks about the pre-existing condition of our Lord Jesus Christ. He existed before he came into the world because he came into the world already having existed. So he wasn't born into the world. It wasn't the first time that he had ever been around. He was the creator of the universe. He came into the world to save sinners. In Luke 19.10 it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. His mission was very simple, to go straight to Calvary, to die upon the cross. It says he endured the shame, endured the pain, despised the shame for the joy that was set before him, which was the salvation of those who would trust and believe in him. 
He was an example. He said, now, this is a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all, and yet for this reason I found mercy, and here it is again, a purpose statement, in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Do not miss this. For those of us who think there are people around us who have no hope, Jesus Christ said that he used the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, as the ultimate example of the patience of God so that when we get frustrated with people around us and think that there is no hope, we are to go back and remember Saul of Tarsus, a man who people at that time thought there is no way in the world that this guy has any hope at all. Only judgment awaits him. And yet he found that our God is rich in mercy and in grace. And when confronted with the truth of God... Paul repented of his sin and turned to God and found mercy and forgiveness in his time of need. Man, I'll tell you what. It just gives you a renewed sense of hope for every person in your family, for every person that you work with, for every person in your neighborhood, for every teacher, every classmate, every student, every person you come in contact with, there is hope for all. Because of Saul of Tarsus, could be saved by God's grace and mercy, <laughs> so can you and I. So can you and I. Pastors and teachers and elders are to teach sound doctrine. They're to preach the gospel. And lastly, he tells us they are to be committed to defending the faith. Defend the faith. To never grow weary in defending the faith. You know, we've got an enemy, the devil who wants to see anything but the Word of God taught from the pulpits of churches across the world. Do a show, do a dance, do entertainment, do psychology, do secular reasoning and philosophy, do anything and everything that you want except teach sound doctrine and preach the gospel and defend the faith. Do anything else you want to do. But man, I'll tell you what, see, the devil's allergic to the Word of God. To resist the devil, we're to memorize and meditate upon the word of God. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, it was te the temptation was an example for us because as God, Jesus could never sin, he could never fail. The example was for you and I to understand how to recognize and resist temptation. And the resistance was found in our Lord's answering every temptation by quoting scripture. It is written, it is written, it is written to defend the faith. This command I entrust to you, Timothy... This command, not an option. It's a military term again. He's left with orders. This is a command. To Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, you may keep the faith. You must finish strong in essence. He's saying we are in a spiritual battle and the enemy wants us to be sidetracked from teaching sound doctrine from examining scripture to make sure that what we're hearing is sound doctrine, from preaching the gospel, preaching half of it, preaching part of it, but don't preach all of it. Because as I mentioned, if we only tell people that they're sinners with no remedy, there's no hope. If we only tell people that you know God loves them and they don't recognize their sinfulness, there's no brokenness or sorrow under repentance. There is no salvation there either. So if he can just lie and manipulate and alter the message in any way, shape, or form, and, and, and by taking people that other people trust and putting them in the position to teach arrogantly, confidently, ignorance, 
then man, that's, that, that's the strategy of the enemy. To call into question the word of God, the truthfulness of God. And what Paul is saying to Timothy and every pastor that has followed since then is never grow weary in defending the faith. Never grow tired in teaching sound doctrine. Never grow tired or cold of preaching the gospel. It's the dynamite of God. It's the only salvation message that man can ever hear. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, the dynamite of God for all who would believe. A sinner can never become a saint that the dynamic work of God within the life of, a, of, a, of an unbeliever. A dead person can't do anything but continue to be dead. And it only takes, and only God can raise the dead to the living. To finish strong, keep the faith, good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And here's the warning. And he calls out two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, as men who were teachers, who were pastors, who were elders, who were leaders in the church, who had turned from their heritage. They had turned from God's truth. And they began to believe the lie that there was some other way to reach people for God's kingdom. They were shipwrecked examples of teachers who knew the truth and turned from it to offer the world something that had no significant, no substance, and no saving or redeeming value. They stopped teaching sound doctrine. They stopped preaching the word of God. They stopped defending the faith. And, call, and he, they are called out publicly as examples of men to not follow. They could have had huge followings, huge congregations, huge buildings, huge programs, and never be deceived by numbers. It isn't always God's stamp of approval. I hear oftentimes people say, but God must be in it because look at the numbers. How ignorant is that? The Mormon church is the fastest growing church in the world and God isn't stamping his approval upon that. It's heresy. It's a lie from hell. It's against everything that sound doctrine teaches. Never be deceived by numbers. Never to be deceived by buildings. Never be deceived by activity. Always examine the scripture to make sure that what is said is of God. Defend the faith. And there has to be a balance it's not enough for a local church to teach sound doctrine and to proclaim the gospel. It must also defend the faith. It's important that every ministry be balanced. Some churches only preach the gospel and seldom teach their converts how to live once they've come to faith in Christ. Others just teach their, their, their congregation and never teach the truth that we need to have a burden for lost people to go out and preach the gospel. And very seldom are we ever told to defend the faith against those who would corrupt the church with false doctrine and godless living. It's a constant battle, but it is one that we must continue to fight. And I want you to know that Alexander and Hymenaeus were pastors who were among the congregation, congregations at Ephesus. They were fulfillment of the, of the warning that Paul had given in, in Acts 20, that some would rise up from even among you, and they would try to lead you astray but check everything they say by the standard of God's word. Be as the Bereans, more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, who received the word of God gladly, examined it daily to make sure that it was truth. And therefore, because of that, many believed God's word and many were saved. The question I have for you in closing is this. If we're to defend the faith and we're in the battle, are you carrying your share of the load? 
See, do you hold pastors and teachers such as myself accountable to make sure that what we're teaching is actually what the Word of God says? Do you ever check it? Do you ever look at it? Or do you just blindly trust that what I'm saying as an example is always truth? I pray to God that you never become that lazy. Because if I don't have people constantly challenging me to make sure that I'm in the Word of God and what I'm teaching is true, I could be easily deceived and led down a path that would turn on that heritage of teaching sound doctrine, preaching the gospel, and defending the faith. So it's a two-way street. I count on you as much as you count on me. We hold one another accountable because you know what? There's only one God and none of us are Him. Have you given up on some, have you given up on some folks and you think there's no hope? Man, praise God that we got a passage here that tells us exactly the opposite. Because if our Lord and His mercy and His grace could save Saul of Tarsus, then I'm thinking, as God says, He's an example for all, that there is hope for all, as they're confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would repent of sin, they would turn to God, they would trust in the finished work of Christ upon the cross and the power of His resurrection, and they shall be saved. For those who willfully defy that message... The Bible clearly says there is no hope. Their sins are upon their own head and they are condemned already. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world. For those who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it because this world's condemned already. But to save it, Jesus' mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. Has he saved you? You can know that with assurance and confidence even as you sit here today and you hear these words, very simply in the attitude of heart that says, God, I recognize what you say is true, that I'm a sinner and I'm guilty. And I trust your mercy and your grace. And I believe what you say, that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. I believe he died for me, that he rose again from the dead, and I want to receive him as my Savior today. The Bible says that the moment that a sinner prays a prayer similar to that, that that sinner is turned from a sinner to a saint, regenerated, reborn from above. It's a miracle of God so that none of us could ever boast. How can you ever get tired of that message? Father, thank you for this time. We just commit it to you. We love you for your word of sound doctrine, for the gospel that saves. May we who have been entrusted with that message continue to defend it until the day that we die. As the Apostle Paul himself even said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith, and awaiting for me is the crown of righteousness and for all who long for and look for the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.